Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we have the huge pleasure to receive Jaime Elizondo. The interview was extremely interesting. Uh, of course, Jaime, uh, for many of you, may not need uh, an introduction, but for others, he has more than 40 years of experience uh, ranching, consulting, and educating in regenerative agriculture. And I have to admit that I've been quite surprised to hear how much enthusiasm he has um, for silvopasture and for trees, where he's been um, running quite a few tests on his operation in Florida. Um, and so he's extremely happy with the results and he is uh, planning on scaling these systems. So, yeah, I think it's quite interesting to get the point of view of somebody um, with his experience and, um, and, um, and to understand why he is so interested in, uh, in integrating uh, trees and creating silvopastoral systems. Hello, Jaime, and welcome on the podcast. Hey, hello, Dimitri. It's nice to be here. Great. Um, I was thinking that we could maybe start uh, this 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 episode by looking at how you got interested in silvopasture. What was your first kind of contact with it? Okay, that takes me back to 1982 when I was in Monterey studying agronomy engineer, and I wanted to make our family ranch uh, more productive. I knew that legumes were needed, so I was looking into legumes that would work in a tropical environment, and there weren't any that would uh, really work in that uh, high rainfall environment that got very hot. It's a sea level environment in Veracruz State in Mexico. So the only one that showed any promise was the leucaena. Mm. And leucaena, ironically, is native to Mexico, but most of what I could read, because there wasn't online back then, I had to read this serum publishing from Australia. So most of research was done in Australia and not in Mexico. Mm. And then to make things worse, in Australia, they didn't have the special bacteria to digest the mimosin in the leucaena, which in Mexico was native. So all the, all, all the research pointed to that leucaena was toxic to ruminants. And in Mexico, it wasn't. But nobody researched that in Mexico until a guy uh, by the last name of Jones did uh, isolate the bacteria in Hawaii from goats. And then they started to inoculate that bacteria in Australia and suddenly there was no mimosine problem, which in Mexico never was, but nobody wanted to plant it, plant the leucaena because of the research down, done in Australia. Wow, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it is. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And um, maybe you could tell us a bit more about your, the family ranch that you, that you mentioned now. Is this where you're still working at the moment? No, no, no. Uh, I have my own ranch that I uh, bought in 19, uh, no, into, let me see, <laughs> 1990. Okay. And it's in a drier area, but it has irrigation. And I have done silver pasture there. I have planted uh, rows of leucaena. First, I started planting leucaena every uh, 90 centimeters rows to graze directly with cattle. But then I, I, I switched to dairy, dairy, a graze dairy. Uh, we milk uh, 250 cows twice a day on 120 hectares plus the replacements and bulls. So um, the tropical grass that we grow there, Bermuda, grows very fast. And it's ready 
in the summer in 14 to 20 days. If you wait longer, it will be over mature. Mm-hmm. And Leucaena, being a tree, takes uh, 35 to 45 days to be mature enough so you do not overgraze it. Mm-hmm. Overgraze is when you regraze the plant before it has fully replenished its reserves. Mm-hmm. So uh, I decided, okay, this is not working. But I learned how to plant, to direct plant with a no-till drill, Leucaena by seed into my paddocks without having to plow the land or without having to transplant trees, which costs 30 times more than direct planting. Mm. So with direct planting, and then I heard that in France, they are doing the same with mulberry uh, and with poplar and um, and willow you can plant cuttings so there are many ways please do not do not try to plant to transplant trees that's very expensive unless they are very valuable trees mm. so okay so i i started researching and i went into permaculture with uh, darren doherty and by then i already had rows of trees uh, tall trees every 33 meters to 40 meters in all my farm. So that created a, a micro environment that helped bring in more uh, animal, insect, and microbiolo- microbiology species into my farm. And as you know, every new species that you draw in brings another seven with it. So that, mm. that has made the, the farm more productive. We do not use any insecticide, chemicals, or fertilizers, and we are beyond organic. We also have adapted genetics that can do more with less uh, because they contain uh, genes from Africa. Okay, very interesting. And when did you start planting the first trees, just to have an idea of, of the timeline? Yeah, my first planting was in 1985 on my family ranch. And the leucaena grew f- very fast, and then it got attacked by uh, a psyllid, an insect that lives near the coast, and mm. killed it. Okay. So uh, when I bought the, my farm, it was further inland and doesn't get that as, as heavy. So we can plant leucaena, and it grows like crazy there. And But I found that the best seeds were not the ones imported from Australia because Australia is a different environment. The best variety was the one growing by the side of the road. So we started harvesting our own because when I I planted the the leucaena that the seed came from Australia varieties, the taramba and another one I I don't recall, um, they didn't work. They didn't grow fast enough. They got attacked by insects and they didn't thrive. But the local one, and there were trees already growing in my farm, uh, those are the best ones. Then to inoculate the seed with the mycorrhiza and the nitrogen uh, producing bacteria, I found, I researched and I found that the best way was to get soil from the, around the roots of mature trees that were healthy. And then you dry that soil and you add to leucaena seed after scarifying it with hot water Mm -hmm. and then you plant it and it grew so much faster so that's another tip there yeah okay that's great because we're getting decades of experience here um from 40 years of tests (laughs) and experiments and seeing what works best it's fascinating yes all this each experiment takes one year at least so it's, it's 40 years experience there. Yeah, yeah, yeah amazing. Um, I mean, just to look a bit more at the, at the big picture before we, of course, we'll zoom into a lot of these details and, and unpack them. Um, what were your initial motivations to plant trees? I mean, what was the first, what was your objective to, to, with yes. integrating trees on your farm? Yeah, uh, to create a savanna effect. When you look back on how, uh, grassland developed in high rainfall areas or tropical areas or subtropical areas. It was by the action of large animals. Uh, 
mammoth, uh, mastodon, and others that could fell trees so herbivores could graze the grasses. Um, in, in the North America, you can find the tall grass prairie species, the big four, uh, big blue stem, little blue stem, Indian grass, and Swiss grass, all along the migration of the bison. So if you, it goes from Manitoba, Canada, I have seen the tall grass species there, to the northern part of Mexico. So I have found the same uh, big blue stem grasses growing in Manitoba, Canada, and in nor near Monterey City in Mexico. So that tells me that that's how it was developed and maintained. When men came into America, at least I'm talking about America, uh, they killed the mastodons and mammoths and all that, and they had to use fire to keep the savanna. So the, those migrating herbivores will come in and they could hunt them. Uh, so when uh, white men came, they found that it was like a garden, but it had already degenerated from what it was to where they found it so productive because it was so much better in humus content mostly, but they had to burn it. And when you burn, you know humus gets burnt. So uh, now we do have other ways to do it. We have uh, caterpillars, bulldozers, and we have cattle that we can manage with the predator effect. Uh, we, we use electric fences for that. And in a ranch, a big ranch that I have been consulting for in uh, North Florida, near Tallahassee, Florida, where you can still find the fossilized pollen of what was there before, now it's all forest, pine forest, that they burn every year to keep it a clearest brush. Mm -hmm. But you can still find that the forest back then, when mammoths were around, was mostly magnolia and live oak, almost no pine trees, and it wasn't burnt every year. When you burn every year, you kill those, you kill those trees. That, that's why we don't find them anymore. Yeah, but they were there, and bison. You can still find the the bones and the fossils when they were migrating there. And when you manage the land correctly, uh, we're doing that with total grazing, which includes a non-selective grazing and deferred paddocks for a full year. In those deferred paddocks that we use for winter feed, that's where the little blue stem and Indian grass is coming back, mm. and they never knew they had it. But now it's coming back from, from seed that is more than 200 years old. Wow. Mm -hmm. so, so that's how we need to manage. So I, I know we need trees. Uh, trees, are they recycle nutrients. They uh, lower the temperature under them. So when it's hot, you have a, a more efficient nitrogen cycle. They, uh, at least the, the live oaks, they have a, a dense network of mycorrhiza that makes uh, nutrients available for grasses and, and other legumes. And you have the shade effect, you have the, the edge effect for wildlife, you have a, a haven for small mammals and birds that can prey on your pest. So it, it all works together to bring uh, not only shade and windbreaks, but all of these uh, advantages. So we need trees, but we do not need too many trees. Um, when you see a, 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 an industrial planting of pine trees, you don't see animals, you don't see wildlife, you don't see many insects. They burn it and burn it and burn it, and it, it becomes a desolate landscape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that type of, of landscape. Everywhere there are these industrial timber uh, systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so uh, deers go in there to hide, but they need somewhere to browse and graze. They, they, they don't live in the forest. They hide in the forest, hmm. just like cattle did a long time ago. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so it, 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 it comes from a place of, of biomimicry, in a way, and of imitating the, the natural processes that you've been observing. Absolutely. We need to imitate nature. When we go against nature, we're going to go broke and mm -hmm. we're going to degrade the land instead of regenerate the land. You know, uh, people ask me, how 
high can the regenerating process go? How high can the humus be? How high can the biodiversity and productivity be? And I say, I don't know, but it's going up every year. That's enough for me. Uh, I hope someone else continues after I'm gone, but it's going up every year. It's improving. There is no limit. There must be a limit, but we haven't reached it by a long way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the potential could be great. Um, I wanted to, to delve into some of the practicalities of, um, sure. of your system. Um, to, um, I mean, the first question that I have is, is why Leucana, for example? Why this species specifically? Okay, for, for that environment, it's the one that works the best. I try different others. Well, there is another one that works equally as well, that is uh, Guasima. Okay. But it's not a legume. Mm-hmm. Be not, uh, when it's not a legume, that means there is no nitrogen fixing. Mm-hmm. The air that we breathe is 78% nitrogen, but it needs to be converted into a, a nitrate or a nitrate so mm-hmm. the, the plants can uh, use it. So for that, you need a good permeability in your soil So for good gas interchange. The earth breaths in, at dusk and breathes out at sunrise. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the bacteria can do their job. But with Leucaena, uh, be, uh, has a very strong root and it's a legume tree, so it can fix up to 300 kilograms of nitrogen per year. Okay. Uh, that equals a ton in, in some of uh, commercial fer- fertilizer. Mm-hmm. So you save that money. And if you look into the Mayan people, the native people of south of Mexico and Central America, they use leucaena as their main fertilizer for corn crops. They will plant alleys of leucaena in rows, and in between the rows, the corn, and then they will cut the leucaena branches with leaves and lay them in the rows of corn, and that will release the nitrogen for the corn, nitrogen and phosphorus and others. Due to the leucaena being a, a perennial, their mycorrhiza system is strong, and you can see the grass growing much better, more than double the height and, and speed of it when you go further from the uh, drip line of the leucaena tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I plant leucaena in, uh, leucaena cannot take flooding. So in the lower parts, the guasima can take the flooding, and cows love guasima. So I looked at other ranchers, all the ranchers around me, and some of them, because it's a drought-prone area, will have a whole paddock of guasima, which they will cut with a chainsaw for the cows in the event of a drought. Yeah. So I have been copying that, and now we are pollarding our leucaena, uh, once a year for our, our cows in the difficult time of the year when we don't have much forage. Okay, nice. I think we'll, we need to go a bit uh, into that. But before, I wanted to understand the spacing. You said you had it spaced between 35 and 40 meters. Why, why so? Um, that's quite wide, for example. And so I want to understand a bit why you chose that spacing. Yeah, it's, this is a learning process. So that was a mistake. Mm. But I did it because I wanted enough space between the rows so the air, uh, when, it, when the wind starts to blow, we could have enough uh, space in between so the cows could cool themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, I didn't have very adapted cows. I had a, a Australian Fries and Sahiwal and, and Girolando, and they cannot take the humid heat well. Mm-hmm. They come from areas that are much much cooler. When you hear about Australia being the tropics, uh, yes and no. It's in the tropics, but it's much cooler than sea mm-hmm. level real tropics in Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the high heat index made me do it that way. And so we could mow in between the roads and all that. Now I am finding that uh, that was a mistake and I'm going to remediate it, even though I'm 60 years old now. <laughs> why was that a mistake would you have wanted them to be closer or yes because the grass in uh that is further than three meters from the leucaena trees uh, doesn't grow as well 
So if I am reasoning, if I can plant a row every 10 meters, so I can uh, polar the, the, the regrowth every year, I will get uh, double production of the grass mm. and I will get uh, four times more leucaena cuttings than right now for the cows. Uh, okay. I can at least double my stocking rate. And as we know, a stocking rate determines profitability on a, on a farm. So your stocking rate would go from what to what? Uh, right now we are around um, two and a half, uh, around three animal units per hectare. Mm-hmm. I expect it to go to five or six. Okay. And that will double profitability. Okay. That's quite exciting for anybody very, listening. Very exciting. <laughs> and just, just from planting the Ukraine the right way. Okay, nice. So we're gonna, we're gonna let's talk a bit about that. How, I mean, you mentioned you're an expert in planting leucana without um, tilling the earth. Um, could you tell us a bit about your your process? What's your optimum, you know, op- or optimal technique? Yes. Uh, first, use a seed. Well, I'm going to talk about leucana, but I want to mention that in other environments, uh, mulberry may be better. Mm-hmm. Mulberry can be planted by seed, uh, harvesting the, the berries and putting them uh, in a row uh, mm-hmm. with mulch and protecting with electric wire on both sides, a high tensile. Yeah, so yeah. cows don't get in and, and kill it. Mm-hmm. Then you have to take care of rabbits and deer or they may kill it. That's why you need to plant a huge acreage, at least 20 hectares at a time, or they will get it and kill it when it's uh, sprouting. Mm-hmm. Most of the peop- of people that uh, plant uh, transplant little trees, mm-hmm. uh, they they get the deer or the rabbits or hares kill it, and mm-hmm. that is that is the reason. And I learned that from Australia. Uh, you need to plant a large acreage to be successful. Okay, that's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, uh, you can plant if it's very cold, poplar. Or you can plant willows in England, for example. Or you can plant, uh, there are many different varieties, black locust. There is a tree that is called uh, Tree Crops by Russell. Yeah, and I that You need to read that book. I've read it. it. It's fantastic. I advise it to all of our listeners, yeah. Yeah, but he doesn't go into detail, but he tells you the possibilities. And it's mm-hmm. up to us to figure it out. So yeah. we need to figure it out and then communicate to other people. So this goes way beyond Mexico and the United States. This has to be done worldwide. We need more and more trees and productive trees at that. Okay, so what I do, and, and I did many different uh, ways. One was to plant on agricultural land along with the milo that we were planting to plant the leucaena. Mm-hmm. But that didn't work very well because leucaena cannot take competition when it's young. Mm-hmm. That's the main problem with leucaena. It cannot take weed and grass competition when it's young. Mm-hmm. So when, whenever you till the ground, that wakes up the monster. And the monster is all the seeds that are there of weeds and grasses, and they will wake up and grow. So now I do a no-till drill planting, mm-hmm. but... Uh, that's the only time in the life that I will plant, use a herbicide. <laughs> but you need to use a herbicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can do it with wood vinegar. I, I make biochar mm-hmm. and I feed it to the cows. And then the cows put it in the dung. And now it's fully loaded with microorganisms and nutrients. And the dung beetles, which we have a very high population, take it down into the soil where the biochar will last for over a thousand years. Mm-hmm. So I think that offsets this little amount of herbicide I'm going to tell you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so first you kill the grass with vinegar. I use wood vinegar because it's a byproduct. Okay. You kill it, and then you no-till drill the leucaena seed, which has been scarified by putting it in water that is 80 degrees for one minute, and then you inoculate it with the ground, the soil, mm-hmm. uh, sifted soil that mm-hmm. uh, and first, well, after it's dry, the, the seed, you put a 
a little milk so it will stick the soil to the seed. Mm-hmm. Then the, the, the sifted soil from leucaena trees, uh, you take the first 10 centimeters off, then you, the next 10 centimeters, that's what you use. At mm-hmm. 1%, that's, a, uh, ha, that's how you inoculate the seed. Okay. Then you plant it uh, every 5 centimeters, one seed in the row with the no-till drill. I use a one-row no-till drill. Okay. And then it starts to sprout like 15 days later. Okay. All of it ger- germinates. And, and that's when you have to pay attention. Because if the grass that will regrow after you kill it with the, um, mm-hmm. with the uh, vinegar, mm-hmm. yeah, you need to use one of those wheat eaters. I use a big one, a Honda, mm-hmm. so we can keep it clean and do it very fast from the grass, the competition. If need be, that's where you can use a herbicide that is a, that only kills grasses, but not legumes. But you have to use it at half the dose. You don't okay. want to kill them. You just want to slow their growth. So Leucaena can get one meter high. Once it's one meter high, you don't need to take care of it. Otherwise, you have to mow, right? You were mentioning you have to mow it frequently and not the leucaena, the grass. With this, mm-hmm. it's a hand, a hand uh, held mm-hmm. that you go and you you clean it by hand. So it's yeah. a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, I don't recommend anymore to plant every ninety centimeters because it gets so hot in there when the leucaena grows, mm-hmm. and the cattle don't do well, and the leucaena don't do well. It does much better planted at every 10 meters mm-hmm. and cut at one meter height, like if you are pollarding, mm-hmm. with a chainsaw. But in the chainsaw, instead of oil for the chain, you use vegetable oil for the chain so you do not kill the, the leucaena. Mm, okay. It's just <laughs> many things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a lot of stuff to digest here. Uh, yeah. Let's just back up a bit. You said you don't recommend planting every 90 centimeters. Um, could, you, could you elaborate a bit more on that just to help us understand what? what... Yeah, the first time I planted the leucaena, I planted every 90 centimeters to get more leucaena yield and more nitrogen fixing. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it gets hot and humid in, in there in my ranch, it, it can get to far, 45 Celsius and 90 uh, humidity. And that kills people and cattle. So they are not uh, happy to be grazing during that time. Yeah. That's why I left some trees to grow tall to provide shade. And now I want to have around 50 trees per hectare, mm-hmm. uh, mature trees that are up to... Uh, seven eight meters tall okay and then the and uh, equally distance one from the other mm-hmm. and then the leucaena that's in the row in between those large trees mm-hmm. that will be pollarded every year okay so you're putting very dense leucaena on a line it- uh-huh. Like every, I don't know, every meter they come out or something like this? No, I, I, I planted every five centimeters every because five some centimeters. of them will get killed by rabbits, mm-hmm. some by deer, uh, some will die from disease. Mm-hmm. So you want to end like with uh, one leucaena tree or brush every half a meter at, after years of cutting it. Okay. When you cut it, I went to France to teach a course there in focal care. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw in a monastery, I saw um, mulberry trees that had been co- uh, pollarded for the branches for silkworms every year for 300 years. Mm. And they were, they were healthy and produced a huge biomass. Very interesting. Yeah. So, you come, so then the, the way in which you manage it is, um, sorry, let's just maybe finish off the, the, the establishment. So yeah. you, you, you've applied, or either you've passed with a brush cutter or you've applied a herbicide, the trees get to one no, meter? No, no, you need to apply the herbicide because if yeah. you do it with a brush cutter, the mm. grass grows very fast. 
Okay, so that's when you need the herbicide, and yeah. then the so you've kept the you've kept the the grass low. The leucaena reaches one meter, and then after that, you're safe. You can just yeah, let go. Of the grass. That's correct. And once it reaches like uh, three meters, two and a half or two three meters, you mm -hmm. can start pollarding it once a year. But it's only for environments that don't get a frost very much, because mm -hmm. frosts will make the leaf drop. Yeah. So in other environments, you can use other species. They are mixed. Mm -hmm. Naturally. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but the competition between, I mean, I'm imagining in the tropics, the, the grass that you have is very vigorous. The competition between the grass and the, and the leucaena, doesn't that, I mean, doesn't it overpower the leucaena in the first like few years? For example, in our climate here, we usually protect trees for the, for the first two, three years to a certain extent. Of course, wild trees are more resistant than non-wild, but... Yeah, that, that's why I, I choose the leucaena, which is a, a legume tree. Okay. Legume trees grow much faster than mm -hmm. other trees. Let me tell you what I found in Manitoba, Canada. I say, why don't you plant trees here? You need trees. They didn't have any trees. Uh, you could see miles and miles and no trees. They say, oh, trees don't grow here. And I said, what's that? It was a, a that's a windbreak, a windbreak. Like, what tree is that? Oh, that's a legume tree that they call the caragana. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a Siber Siberian uh, pea, pea brush. Yeah. So we went to see it, and it was grazed, browsed by the cows all the way so they could reach. And yeah. I, why don't you plant this? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So that's what they need to plant in places like that. It grows like crazy, and, and it's very palatable, and it produces nitrogen, and it will catch the snow and prevent uh, the cattle from drowning in snow. And we'll catch the snow for, for uh, moisture because it doesn't rain much there, but it gets cold, and, and provide very good feed. So I don't understand people. We need more trees. Even in your place, uh, there is one that they plant in the Canary Island, uh, comes from Australia. I don't recall the name. Maybe you know it. No? Um, right now off the top. Ah, I, I, think, I think that's the best for, for Greece. And it looks like Leucaena, but it's not Leucaena. Ah, it's, um, I, think I've, I think I have it in mind. It uh, doesn't come to me. I think I've seen it in the south of Portugal. Yeah. In Alentejo. Uh, it's a legume tree. Legume brush. What's the name? Do, do you recall it? Uh, M something. Uh, they M do it. Huh? M something you said? Yeah, <laughs> uh, don't remember right now. But in Australia, they, if you look at legume trees in Australia for cattle, they that's the one yeah. they use. Where okay. it rains, how, how much rainfall do you get? We get uh, about six hundred millimeters on average, but uh, in the winter, just in the winter. I mean, uh, I'm talking now in Greece, huh? Where yeah, we're yeah, in Greece. In Greece, um, in the summer we have six months of basically just just maybe five millimeters rainfall okay then that's the one you know in australia it's also mediterranean climate so yeah. winter rains so that's the tree you need i don't remember right now the name but i yeah. uh, i will find it and send it to you i really appreciate it thank yeah. you uh we've also planted lots of acacia salinia and uh mm -hmm. that was i saw some studies where they were giving it to sheep and uh, they had some pretty good results but again these are just a few studies that i read here and there I don't have personal experience with it, but um, it's definitely in terms of a tree that we planted for other reasons like windbreaks and biomass. It's so vigorous; it's exceptional. The it just grows with nothing. Then that's the one you you need because I always tell people, uh, don't try to kill what's trying to live or grow, and don't try to grow what's trying to die. <laughs> that means adapted species. Yeah. yeah. And actually also um, adapted genetics, as you mentioned, for your cattle. So maybe that's something we can, we can discuss a bit because I think some of our listeners will probably think, well, are my cattle, you know, do, are they adapted to a silver pastoral system? Are they adapted to, um, to eating tree fodder? Um, what, what, could you, what could you advise them? Okay. Uh, goats are the best ones for, for browsing, mm -hmm. but they also kill trees when they peel the bark off. Uh, then come cheap, cheap loved uh, browsing. 
and they would do much better browsing than grazing grasses, tropical grasses, I mean. Mm -hmm. And then cows. Uh, most cows that we use are European Bostaurus, but some of them have African genes because the Muslims invaded Spain and they brought their cattle from Africa. And cattle from Africa are much more prone to browsing okay. because they, they were uh, domesticated in Africa. So they are, they are African Bostaurus. I am not referring to Cebu or Indian Bos Indicus. I am talking about African Bostaurus. And we have the largest Machona herd in Florida. I am consulting for them. And uh, they are a pure African Bostaurus native breed. And we have been able to browse exactly the same as with goats, but these cattle, they can reach higher. So we have, we have goats and, 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 be, and the Machona. And the Machona do the same job as the goats. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of variability in cattle, cattle breeds. Maybe you have a native breed. The more native the breed is in cattle, the more uh, African Bostaurus genes they have. I have found some very good ones in Portugal, in Sicily, in Spain, and in France. No, not in France. Okay, okay. interesting. Yeah, more in the southern countries, closer to Africa. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so, because the problem would be, as you said, uh, molecules like mimosine inside the locaena, which um, can be poisonous, right? So is, is this something that really happens in, in many species, in many, in many trees that we have to be careful of? Or? Uh, locaena is very easy to fix. You just uh, bring the bacteria and you put it in the water trough and they drink it and then everybody has it and once in your life. That's it. Oh, wow. Then they pass it from one cow to the other very fast. Mm -hmm. But the main problem with trees is tannins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When cattle go or wildlife go to, to browse uh, trees and brush, they communicate like avatar through the underground system of mycorrhiza. Mm -hmm. And their tannin levels go up. After half an hour of grazing, tannin levels go up. Mm -hmm. So you need the cows to browse uh, um, a break, a new break, in less than half an hour. Or you do what I do. You pollard the trees. Then they, that doesn't happen. So, or you find a low tannin species or you use a polyethylene glycol uh, supplement so it will trap the tannins in the rumen so they will not do so much harm. Okay, so there's some techniques available. Some yes. indications there for, for our listeners. But, uh, I mean, it brings up the question for me, in, in your low uh, forage production, I, I guess it's the dry, the dry winter period, right, in, in your yes. case. Yes. Um, how, how, how much does the, does the um, leucaena represent in terms, of, in, in terms of food intake? What's the percentage? Okay. Uh, I think what you want to know is how much in percentage rate of inclusion that can be, can be of the whole intake, yeah. right? Yeah. I have done some research in, uh, in mine, they go to 30, 50%. But I have been, I have seen research in Australia after feeding the Yonesi bacteria that degrades mimosin mm -hmm. up to 100% with no uh, problem. 100% leucaena. Okay. Yeah. You see leucaena has a, around 22 to 25% protein. So it may be too much protein. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the good part is that you do not have to feed protein because protein is very expensive nowadays with soybean meal so high. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. So it's a good way to survive through these hard economic times and be more resilient by producing your own protein with trees. It makes sense. And, and it actually represents quite a big proportion. I mean, it's quite, yeah. we're talking about quite high percentages. It's not just nibbling a bit over here and a bit over there. It's Yes. So, so, so when I planted uh, every 90 centimeters, my idea was, oh, I can go very high in stocking rate, uh, five times higher. And then if, uh, if I don't have enough grass, I can feed them uh, straw or Milo stalks. No problem because the protein is in the leucaena. Well, surprise, surprise, it doesn't grow as well so close together. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And actually, I, I had a question earlier on that uh, that came up. Um, you know, when when you're looking at your system, you mentioned that you're pollarding them at about a meter height. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, that in, that in, that means quite a or it means a certain labor requirement to, to go in yeah. there and to do that, especially for a big herd as you have, and uh, and for big acreage. Um, and I mean, we're talking about a quite significant scale here. Um, and so, what would be? Why not do the an alternative, a potential alternative of browsing directly on the tree? Is that something you've tested and that you've that hasn't worked out at all? Yes, that didn't work out because if you do not protect the tree, the cows will bend the branches and consume the the leaves, and then come back and peel off the bark. Mm-hmm. And when you peel off the bark, you kill the the leucaena. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the wasima they do not peel the bark, but they it's not flexible, so they break the branches. Okay. And it's the same as if you cut it, but cheaper, of course. Uh, and and it takes only two persons one hour a day to feed the two hundred and fifty cows using the the pollarding technique. And, and when you pollard, you are certain that the trees don't die. When you graze them, you're always in uh, some percentage die every year. So after 10 or 20 years, uh, you will end with nothing. And I don't want to replant. I want to do it once in my lifetime and I'm, I'm over. I'm finished. So yeah. by pollarding, I had seen it. I told you in France, mm-hmm. a 300 years old trees. Yeah. Makes sense. And what, what do you do with the branches afterwards? I mean, you've pollarded them, the branches are everywhere. That must yeah. be some kind of a problem. Yes. Here comes the, the nice part about, about using legume trees in the tropics. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the branches are not thick enough and you cut them every year, they will uh, degrade very fast and, and be integrated into the soil. Uh, this first year that we cut them and they were very thick, like a up to four inches, the branches. Mm-hmm. And what we did is after they got all the leaves off and they left the skeletons, we cut those skeletons and put them inside the fence in the row so they will decompose and add to the organic matter for the trees. Okay. But next right. year, I'm, I'm going to be certain to cut them every year. Right now, six to seven months old regrowth is around two to three meters high. Yeah. And so then you can just leave it on the floor and it gets eaten up. That's the idea because when I was a young boy, mm-hmm. uh, fifth, 12 years old, I would make forts out of leucaena branches and I couldn't cut the big ones so they were very uh, slender and they would decompose in a few months. They will be turned into dirt. Mm. And I guess also going back a bit to the pollarding vs. browsing directly, you have, you know, as as the as the grazier, you have more control over how much the animals eat, right? So you can kind of play with your nitrogen content. You have, you can decide how many branches to cut down, how much to provide. Yes, and which trees to let grow uh, for shade. Uh, yeah. Another idea I had a long time ago was to plant, uh, let's say, thirty percent of the paddock, but at the at the end of the rectangular paddock. 30% and then I could open the gate so they could browse it every time I wanted. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is that you do not get the benefit from the mycorrhiza and nitrogen fixing life in the in the leucaena to the whole park. Mm-hmm. And and I have since I, I sent you a video. You can see that three meters on each side of the row, it grows double the size than further away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Really interesting. So that's why we need trees all around. We not only in certain parts of the park. We need them all around. But how are you going to manage fencing? Because already, I mean, what's your current fencing situation? You've got a you've got a, a a wire there throughout the year, and then you just connect the electricity when the when uh, the it, it, yeah, it's there year round. It's a with PVC post, three quarters of an inch thick, okay. and they are uh, scheduled forty. That's important, so they last a long time. Yeah, and then uh, because they are, they will be so. Right now, they are forty meters apart, so mm-hmm. no problem. Yeah, but when we make them every ten meters, uh, I already ordered the post. Uh, we have the seat ready. Um, we we need to live in the rows 
uh, breaks so the cows can go through those breaks and not have to go to the end of the road to, to go to the next uh, open area. Mm-hmm. And so doing it that way, I hope we can get a better uh, forest utilization of the grass mm-hmm. and more uh, forest produced by the leucaena effect and more leucaena to be pollard in, in our winter. Mm. And so that seems like quite a big infrastructure cost. But, but you, your math shows that it's worth it. I'm going to tell you why it's worth it. Because mm-hmm. we are irrigating with a low-pressure system overhead that uh, lends itself to trees. You cannot use a, a center pivot with trees, right? Because mm-hmm. it, the trees get on the way. So I found a way to do it in a low-cost, initial cost, and low-maintenance and low-pressure, big drops so they don't get carried by the wind. Mm-hmm. And that way we're, we can irrigate one hectare with very low labor and investment. Now, to put the fences to that one hectare, it costs like 50 times less than to buy another hectare. Another hectare to produce the double the amount costs you 50 to 100 times more than putting the fences and planting the leucaena. So I prefer to keep the money in my pocket and, and make a better, a better future investment that will continue to improve every year. So it's instead of scaling, you're mm-hmm. going through the process of really improving the biomass and feed potential of the current hectares that you have. And, yes. and that's cheaper for you. Much Increasing cheaper. the stocking rate. It makes more sense because with the same people, same management, same investment, you can double your production and your profit or triple. So that's what I like about these regenerative pasture systems. And another thing, uh, once you have the leucaena growing because it gets so hot there and with the irrigation, you can start planting other species that grow taller and get, produce fruit. And in those places where the cows don't get in, though, because it's a one meter on each side, two meter wide uh, swat where the row grows, you can plant uh, vines that produce trees like dragon fruit. It grows well there. Mm, so you could diversify even yes. further and then be selling dragon yes. fruit, for example. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or for our own consumption. Yeah, naturally. I have planted orange trees, mango trees, avocado trees. Mm-hmm. We can plant so many different species. Mm-hmm. You could also, I guess, in, especially in the tropics, but also in other places, start looking at timber. Uh, as not as necessarily as a viable, not well, it could be, but I'm not saying just necessarily as a as a full on enterprise, but as an extra thing where in 20, 30 years down the line, it could be huge capital gain for the next generation that's going to pick up the farm, for example. And yes, the species that grow very well there for timber is uh, thick, thick mm-hmm. wood. They grow okay. very well there. I already planted other uh, for wood that is called a guanacaste. It's a very nice wood for uh, furniture. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you can do all that. We want to have a three levels pasture, the brush to cut, and then a, a taller tree. Yeah. For the, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned we don't want too many trees. And one of the reasons right. I expect is the, um, is, oh, as you mentioned, sorry, one of the reasons that you mentioned already is the airflow, that you want to have some, some movement of air on the farm that Uh, is one another one is excessive shade like in a pine tree forest and nothing grows under it mm -hmm. you do not want that you 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 need sunlight to reach the floor so you can have a a biodiversity Mm -hmm. yeah yeah naturally where do wildlife thrive wildlife thrive in the in the edge effect where the forest meets the pasture so by doing this we are creating the most herd effect areas you, you can. Interesting. But what about competition? I mean, do you ever, you know, what we're seeing in other circumstances is when there's enough water, there's a positive effect on the grass. But yeah. when there's a drought, then suddenly the, you know, species can have a tendency to be selfish and then the tree is efficient and, and is, is absorbing a lot of the water and therefore the pasture takes a hit. For example, that's a, that's a great observation and one that most people believe. But 
I have consulted in many areas, for example, in Chihuahua, in desert areas, the places where the grass grows better is under shrubs and trees. In the mountains, when they, they say, oh, we want to cut all these uh, live oaks, that they're shrubs. Uh, they don't grow tall because they get uh, 12 to 14 inches per year mm-hmm. in the summer, in the late summer. But uh, we told them, look, where is the grass growing better? Oh, under the trees. And you want to cut them? Oh, no. The owner immediately said, stop cutting them, stop cutting them. <laughs> because in truth, that's where the grass grows best. It's, and it's because of the nutrient recycling. The trees are a nutrient pump with uh, deeper roots mm-hmm. because of the soil, of the less uh, temperature, because of the diffuse shade. We want diffuse shade that you get by spacing of the trees and selecting your species. And because of the mycorrhiza. Mm-hmm. Live oaks and leucaena have very good mycorrhiza to bring life back to the soil. So you don't believe there's a context in which, you know, there will be, you'll have to choose between pasture and trees or trees. I haven't seen that yet. I have seen in in desert areas where the trees started to die off, invasive trees like uh, Wisache and Mesquite, Mm -hmm. they will start to die off because the grass being a shallower rooted will consume the moisture with higher humus after doing the total grazing process the humus increases uh you know one percent organic matter holds at uh 25,000 gallons per, per acre of mm-hmm. moisture so it doesn't go deep enough for the tree roots and they start to die off that's in desert area okay so you need uh you need management always mm-hmm. yeah but you need the trees don't kill them off yeah mm-hmm. No, naturally, I mean, this is also what we're trying to investigate here is to understand, you know, where does it work and where not. Um, observation, observation. Go and look at them and see where the grass grows better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, talking about this, uh, I just recently posted on our social media um, of the podcast observations from, from the farm where I'm at at the moment. And you'll see where we have tree lines, fruit tree lines um, that are five meter apart. After three weeks of drought on a sandy soil, um, the green, the, the pasture was, was green and coming back. Um, places where we had about 10 to 15 meters apart in between the tree lines, it was, it was yellow. The only thing sticking out was alfalfa and it was 10, 15 meters tall, spotted around, but pretty much yellow. And, and, we've, and it's a pattern the farmer where I'm, I'm working, he's seeing this year on year. It's just one example, but we see it in other places. That means you need them closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. Just like me, I found uh, we have been observing, observing, and every 40 meters is too, too, too far apart. We need them closer. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Um, one one of, the, of, the, of the things that can be confusing with this type of system is the, um, the cycles of rotation, because one thing is, is, um, is um, grazing with silver pasture, but of course, what you're specialized in is, is non-selective grazing and, and getting and creating a mobile predator imitating, uh, um, um, you describe it much better than I can, but I wanted to understand how, uh, how that works with your silver pastoral systems. Did you meet any big challenges with having to move the animals regularly? Uh, I mean, how does that fit in with dynamic rotational systems? Oh, yeah, it's not a problem. You see, we, we need to do non-selective grazing, mm-hmm. followed by a long enough rest period so they replenish fully their energy reserves because we need fat roots. Mm-hmm. Fat roots leads to fat soil, which means high in humus content. Mm-hmm. And fat soil leads to fat cattle. And fat cattle can give you a fat wallet. Mm-hmm. But it all starts with fat roots. So how do we create fat roots? Well, what creates energy is photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. And what consumes energy in a plant is respiring. The stems respire. The leaves produce photosynthesis, energy. So the difference between the production of energy and the consumption of energy is what's left for production. 
and what's left after production is returned to the soil to the rhizosphere as exudates to feed the soil microorganisms. When the plant roots get fat, the soil microorganisms get fat. And when they get fat, they are converted into humus after many digestions by other generations of microorganisms, with the final digestion being carried out by fungi. Mm -hmm. And then after a process like maturing, a process of humification, it's converted into humus, which is the stable fraction of organic matter that lasts for over 100 years in your soil and gives it a dark brown color and its good earthy smell. Mm-hmm. So that's how you create humus. Mm-hmm. And trees play an important part in this. Now, what makes a highly productive grass or forest plant? The leaf to stem ratio. Mm-hmm. That's what you said. So the leaf to stem ratio is directly influenced by the type of grazing. If it's a selective grazing where they take the leaves and leave the stems, Mm-hmm. That means a less, uh, lower energy plant with lower humus formation. Mm-hmm. If you have, if you do a, a non-selective grazing, what comes up? Leaves. When you mow your lawn, your lawn, you get a high leaf to same ratio in your regrowth. How do you keep it there? The high leaf to same ratio all the way into stockpile. Mm-hmm. Well, by doing a. a a non-selective grazing after the grass plant has fully replenished its reserves and then you allow it to stockpile and it will keep growing the size of its leaves without producing seed heads mm-hmm. and increase the humus. And this is a virtuous spiral that will go up and up every year mm-hmm. because we stockpile half of the property, not the whole of the property. Okay. Every year. And then we alternate these areas. Mm-hmm. Okay, nice. So that's the, that's the basis of, of having a healthy um, pasture system with a lot of, a lot of pasture. And um, that, that's, what, that's also why pollarding is much better than browsing because you take the stems off. That's mm-hmm. why the regrowth is so much faster. Mm-hmm. So even though it's more labor than just browsing it off, it's much more productive and stable. Yeah. Mm, it's okay. important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it makes sense. It's clearly an important part of, of your system there. Um, and they're pollarded um, every year, right? Each tree gets pollarded every year. Yes, with uh, 50 per hectare left to grow mature and not touched. Interesting. Okay. Very nice. Um, listen, f- for me, um, there's, there's been, uh, you've been very clear at answering the, the questions and you've def- de- de- defined for us quite a, uh, you know, it was a basic introduction to, to your, to the functioning of your system, which uh, somehow seems very, very elegant. And, um, especially the way you're explaining it, it's simply elegant. So, um, I love elegant simplicity. Like yeah. a, a paper clip, that's elegant simplicity, or a ball ballpoint pen. Yeah. I love those things. So I try to do it very simple, easy to manage, and easy to explain. That's fantastic. And actually, maybe we can we can finish off by you explaining a bit your your recent course that I think it just started or it's about to start. But maybe you can present to our readers um, some of your educational work if they're interested to look further into your work and your techniques. Yes, you can find my website. It's www.rwranching.com And I am YouTube under Real Wealth Ranching Mm -hmm. and Facebook also. And uh, the course that is coming out in Spanish on August the 2nd is called Pastoreo Total. Mm -hmm. And then in September or October, we're going to come out with a total grazing maximizer, which includes adaptive genetics and selection guidelines with total grazing. It's two courses in one. Okay. So you need to sign up. Uh, You can go there to the Facebook group or the webpage and sign in and you will get uh, my weekly blogs, which are also posted on Instagram and on 
Facebook and on uh, on YouTube. Yeah. But you'll get it to your email and you will get uh, the announcement on when the next opening will be for the next course. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, well, Jaime, thank you so much for coming okay. on the podcast and um, for uh, sharing with us your, your, your large experience on the topic. And, well, uh, you, know, you know how it is. Um, uh, experience comes from poor decisions and good decisions come from experience. So I have made a lot of mistakes. 